Well, good morning, everyone. As I think about our passage this morning, uh, I uh, told the staff as we prayed together this morning, I understand why you don't often see people teaching through Second Peter. <laughs> this is hard, uh, both to prepare and, and, and to receive. These are some strong words, but uh, I have been overwhelmed as I've looked at our passage in this morning in particular And what I hope you see as we walk through it together is just the amazing patience and grace and mercy that God has extended to us um, as we anticipate a day when when he will be the final judge. And we'll look at that together this morning. Before we do, I want us to just think about uh, the power that comes when people rally around a a common cause. I call it the, the power of we. And the power of we is always stronger than the power of me. In other words, who we are together as a group is always stronger than any one person in that group. It's a truth that we all understand, but yet we still struggle to achieve it. It reminds me of the movie a few years ago that you might have seen called Remember the Titans. Remember that movie? It was a movie where where Denzel Washington played a, a coach by the name of Coach Boone who came in to lead a football team who was segregated along racial lines. They had tremendously talented athletes, but they simply could not play together because of the color of their skin. That is until Coach Boone came on and taught them how to respect each other and to to recognize the unique gifts and abilities that each of them had that contributed to the overall success of that team. It's definitely a feel-good movie, isn't it? If you've seen it, you know you just, it just makes you feel good. But I think the reason it does is because when we watch things like that, there's something inside of us that says, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. In fact, I think we see the power of we in most all great human endeavors. You may remember the speech that John F. Kennedy gave one of his famous speeches when he said, we choose to go to the moon. And then he goes on to describe and explain that one man would not go to the moon, but it would instead be what? An entire nation. You remember that? It said that during that time in our history, that you could walk onto the campus of NASA and you could go up to anybody on that campus, including the groundskeeper, and you could ask them, What is your job? And without exception, they would tell you, my job is to help get a man to the moon. And we did. It was the power of we. (laughs) That powerful connection when, when a group comes together and rallies around a common cause. And in fact, that is the very foundation of the country in which we live. Men and women gathered around a common cause. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. But just as there is a power and a unity of purpose, there is also a certain defeat whenever division exists. It's true in sports. It's true in society. It's true in the church. Even Jesus said, a house divided will not stand. And and I think knowing this truth is the reason that Peter so adamantly opposed the false teachers. 
he knew that division created the destruction of the common purpose that we have within the church. And in his mind, and hopefully ours as well, that was worth fighting for. And so he sets out to expose their lies. Last week we talked about that unholy trinity of the false teachers and their character. Immorality, greed, and deceit. And yet, despite this corrupt character, we learned that many will follow their compromising lifestyle. It looks like they're living this high life and this wave of popularity. And then Peter reminds them, as we looked at last week in verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. It may look like there are no consequences to their decisions, but there is. And in our passage this morning, Peter says, let me tell you how I know why. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that uh, you will give us a heart that is soft this morning, that is able to hear these merciful words of warning, of, of an understanding of what has been done in the past so that we see with an increasing clarity the certainty of what you promise yet future. I pray, Father, for us as believers in Jesus Christ that it would compel us to stand firm in what you've told us to, to, to stand in your truth, that we would proclaim it unashamedly. If there is compromise, I pray that we would, we would, be, we would wake up and come alive to the truth of following you. And Father, if there's death, I pray that you bring new life to those who do not know you. Have your way this morning, Father, our sovereign God and King. We pray this in your name. Amen. So it says, their judgment is not idle, their destruction is not asleep. And then then Peter says, let me tell you how I know why. He then goes on to give three examples from the past that give evidence of the certainty of what God will do in the future. If you will, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. And look, beginning in verse 4 with me. This is, this is his first of the three examples. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world. And then he goes on to talk about Noah. We'll look at that in just a second. The first example he gave is God's judgment when the angels sinned. The prophet Ezekiel talks about one such rebellion when Satan, originally created, as he says, as a seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, decided to usurp the authority of his creator. He goes on to describe that in this way. He says, you, speaking of Satan, were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I've cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. 
from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Satan and all of the the angels who followed him made a sinful decision. And, And did you notice the very heart of their rebellion? Look at there again. It says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Satan elevated his opinion of himself higher than his opinion of God. He worshipped himself instead of worshipping God. He refused to submit to the authority of the master who created him. Now, did you hear that? That should sound very familiar to you. Do you remember what we talked about last week where Peter says in verse 1 that they were denying the master who bought them. It's the same thing. In fact, I think it's the heart of, of every rebellious attitude that selfishly declares, I don't need you, God. I'm doing just fine on my own. God judges this sinful pride. And in the case of the angels, Peter says that God cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness until the day of judgment. As you hear that, I don't want you to think in your mind's eye about a place where the demons are incarcerated, where they're being held in prison. Instead, what I believe Peter wants us to know here is that their sinful rebellion did not go unpunished to the point that God sovereignly controls the limits of their demonic activity until the day when their destruction is final. We know about that because of what the book of Revelation says in chapter 20, verse 10, when it says this, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I believe Peter begins here with the example of the angels in order to demonstrate God's ultimate dominion over all things, including things in heaven, and as we'll see next, things on earth. Everything that is in heaven and everything that is on earth exists in ultimate submission to the unlimited, all-powerful rule and reign of God. Peter starts in heaven, and now he turns his attention to things that we're familiar with here on earth. Look at verse 5 goes on to say, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought them a flood upon the earth on the ungodly. Everyone knows the story of Noah and the flood. But in this description, Peter actually gives us some new information. He says that God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Now, as we read the account of Noah in Genesis, we don't see any sermons from Noah, do we? We're given a lot of information. But Moses doesn't describe Noah necessarily as a preacher of righteousness. But I want you to think about this. Here's what we do know. God said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. 
and that every intent of the thought of his heart was on evil continually. Except for Noah, the scripture says, who was righteous and blameless in his time. So God called Noah and told him to build a boat, a huge boat, 500 feet long, another 90 feet wide, basically the size of a football field and a half put together. It was a ship the size comparable to the Titanic. And from what we can tell from Scripture, it took Noah about 120 years to build this boat. So what do you think is happening? to this crazy old man who's building this behemoth of a boat on dry land for 120 years. Have you thought about that? What do you think people are saying to him? Hey, Noah, are you going to put some uh, floodlights on that boat? Are <laughs> you going to let the elephants bring their trunks? <laughs> There's no telling the nonsense that he heard, but it was much more serious than that. <laughs> Noah would have been an outcast in his society. He would have dedicated his life to the cause. And over and over, his witness was rejected. It would have been impossible, impossible for Noah to talk about the boat and not preach righteousness. How many times, how many times he must have spoken the words of God's judgment of sin through the waters of a flood that would someday come. And the invitation he gave to be rescued by that same God. 120 years. And not one person outside of the seven people in his own family. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and each of their wives. Not one person heeded the warning of judgment and accepted the rescuing hand of God. Not one. Before we ask, how could God have destroyed the world with the flood? I think we need to ask, how could not one person, after 120 years of preaching righteousness, not turn to that God who was inviting them to be rescued? There was plenty of room on that ark, I promise you. He built it for that purpose. But only eight people, out of hundreds of thousands, maybe even Millions of people who populated the earth were willing to surrender their lives to the living God. Mm. What Noah witnessed, what Peter goes on to proclaim, and what we know even to this day is that many will follow their sensuality. Perhaps Peter had in mind the words of Jesus when he spoke to his disciples and he tells them, For the gate is wide and the way is broad, That leads to destruction. And there are many who will go through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few that find it. As the reader of Peter's letter is reminded of Noah's perseverance. Perhaps they would have been encouraged to do the same. As they watch the crowds of people following the false teachers of their day. Maybe they began to doubt their faith. Maybe they were growing weary and and losing heart. And so Peter writes to stir them up so they will stay the course, even if they are in the minority. And I pray that you and I would be stirred up 
for the same reason, even if we are in the minority. And then he turns to his final example, Sodom and Gomorrah. If you would look at verse 6. It says, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to the destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. With Noah, there were eight people saved out of an entire civilization. In this example with Lot, we see one man saved out of an entire city of sin. The single attribute that these nine people have in common is a righteousness that comes through faith in God. And here again, as we read this account in Peter's letter, we're given some new information that we didn't necessarily have in the Old Testament account. From the Genesis account, we we know that at least Lot, Lot was righteous because that was the heart of Abraham's prayer for his nephew. God, will you rescue even just one before you judge the city? But that really is the only clue that we have because Lot in and of himself was not really impressive. We know that he chose to go to the cities of the valley despite their sinful reputation. He he went with a great wealth that he had received, inherited from his uncle Abraham. And with that wealth came power and influence. We learned that as we walked through that together not too long ago because it told us that Lot sat at the city gate as a judge, a person of influence in this community. We learned that uh, he was successful, that he was prominent, but he was asleep. He had closed his eyes to the sin that surrounded him. To his credit, he did not participate but his abstinence does not excuse his apathy his abstinence does not excuse his apathy just because he doesn't participate doesn't remove the responsibility that he has to speak the truth to a lost and dying world Lot definitely wasn't perfect, but, but he, he was a righteous man. And, and because of that fact, Peter says that his soul was tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We might have seen uh, his life and looked at it from the outside and it seemed pretty good. But on the inside, what we learn from Peter is he was tormented day after day. His silence in the midst of that sin was haunting him. He worked real hard to segregate his spiritual convictions from his business life. But God would not allow that division. He was tormented by his compromise. I think this is a a good place to ask ourselves. Are we tormented or just tolerant? Are we silent in the presence of sin? Have we closed our eyes to the spiritual decay that surrounds us? 
Because it's there. No denying it. Have we made the mistake that Lot made when he chose to segregate his private convictions from his public life? I believe many of us have learned to cope with the world around us by adopting Lot's philosophy. He held a political office. He was a successful businessman. He had a a comfortable home and a healthy family. Apparently, as a righteous man, Lot learned to live peacefully among sinners by preventing his personal convictions from interfering with another individual's right to choose. No matter how devastating, both personally and socially, that choice might have been. (laughs) To each his own, Lot might say. I may not agree with your choice, but, but it is your choice. As far as I'm concerned, as long as we live in a mutually beneficial society where every man can do what is right in his own eyes, I'm okay with that. You see, Lot had so segregated his life that his relationships with the sinner never intersected with his own life of faith. He protected his prominence by keeping his convictions private. He was successful in business because he simply didn't let his God life interfere with his social life. And his soul was tormented. And if you and I make the same mistake, I can only pray by the grace of God that our soul would be tormented as well. Because here's the truth. Nothing changes in our world until something changes in your heart. Nothing changes in our world until something changes in your heart and in my heart. Unless we're moved to make a difference, the corruption of our society goes unchecked. Don't let your abstinence excuse your apathy. But on the other hand, don't mislabel your arrogance as righteous anger. The church is well known for picking up stones to pummel the sinner without ever having made an effort to engage with their life. We're quick to condemn someone's actions without ever making an effort to speak with them in person. We're experts, oftentimes, at identifying sin. But no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Part of the torment in our soul should be the driving compassion to lead people to the cross of Jesus Christ. That should be what stirs us. Not with quarrels and and cruelty, but with kindness and compassion. Not with, with, with picket signs, but with conversations. Gently correcting those in opposition. Patient when wronged. knowing that it's ultimately, as Scripture tells us, God, who must grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Our job, Melly Park, our job is not to convince somebody of the truth. Our responsibility is to speak the truth in love, to be a light in a dark world. Don't hide your light. In fact, 
I think that's part of the warning here. Peter says in verse 6 that what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah was, what he says, an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. God's warning was an act of mercy for future generations so that they would not fall into the same trap of unrestrained sin. But let me ask you something here. Are those who lead that lifestyle reading this book? Not necessarily. Even more so, are they the ones sitting in this room this morning? No, they're not. So how do we hear about what we know to be true and not let it leave this room? I'm telling you, we talk a lot about community in this church. But what a terrible tragedy if what we do in here or in our small groups, on our ABFs, if what we do in that world doesn't in some way impact the real world around us, that's tragedy. The warning in this passage may be for the ungodly, but it's written as a wake-up call to the righteous. Because it all boils down to what Peter says next. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. I'm going to stop there. We'll pick up next time. But let's think about what Peter just said. As we read those words, I believe it is, in fact, the main point of the passage and very possibly the very central message of the entire letter. What Peter just told us is this. God is in control. Everything in heaven and everything on earth exists in complete and total submission to the unlimited, all-powerful rule and reign of God. He knows how to rescue the righteous. And he knows how to judge the sinner with justice. He will always, always embrace, embrace those who have a repentant heart. And he will, he will spurn those who re, remain in rebellion until the day of judgment when his righteous decision is made final. The additional commentary in this first part of Verse 10 is interesting. It says, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. More literally, from the original text, it says this, especially those who go after the flesh in a passionate longing for defilement. Peter uses some strong words here to describe an insatiable appetite for sensuality, for, for personal gratification. In my mind, what, what Peter is describing here is what I consider the worst possible judgment that God could ever give. The judgment being his holy decision to let the unrepentant sinner have his way. And the inevitable result is a life lived in a passionate longing for defilement. It's what Paul describes to the Romans when he says in chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore, God gave them over 
in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy. And he goes on and on and finishes by saying that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. As far as I'm concerned, these are the most frightening words in all of Scripture. God gave them over. But I want you to see that it was not without warning. We've seen God's judgment in the heavenly realm with the angels. We know of the overwhelming destruction of the flood upon the earth. And we have been given an example of the the catastrophic destruction that comes when sin is allowed to reign. Warning. 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 The angels lived in the presence of righteousness, but they did not believe. Noah preached righteousness for 120 years, but the people did not believe. Lot let his abstinence excuse his apathy. So God gave them over to their sinful desires Because they did not believe. Even the false teachers preach lies because they don't believe. But in fact, were it not for the grace of God, no one would believe. We are saved because we have been rescued. Scripture tells us, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, with which He loved us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Jesus Christ did for you what you cannot do for yourself. You have been rescued. And to this day, that offer of salvation, that hand of rescue that existed with Noah, that existed with the Sodom and Gomorrah that existed all throughout time still is on the table. Forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the the message of the gospel that we're called to proclaim. God is not slow about, about bringing judgment. I think the whole point of what we're looking at here is that He is amazingly patient in long suffering with warnings and, and pleas to come to Him. The delay of his return is because of his mercy. And by that same mercy, God reminds us of what he has done in the past to give us the certainty of what is yet to happen in the future. A day of reckoning draws near. And when Christ returns, the judgment will be final. And on that day, the offer of salvation is off the table. 
God knows how to judge the sinner. But he also knows how to rescue the righteous. And if I'm the reader of Paul's letter, and I believe for most of us in the room this morning, this is the part that I want to pay attention to. I want to let this soak in. Because if I live righteously in a broken world, chances are there are going to be times when I am simply beaten down. It may be like Noah, I'm ridiculed for what I believe to be true. Or perhaps I'm just weary because it seems like it's futile to strive against what is so willingly accepted by the masses in our world today. My influence feels like a a drop in the bucket compared to the filth that comes streaming into our lives in a media-driven society which knows no boundaries. But listen to me. Listen. God always rescues the righteous. As we finish up this morning, I want to give you just three quick things to give you an assurance of that truth. God rescues the righteous, first of all, by restraining evil. Satan and his demons do not have free reign in the world today. They only wreak havoc within divinely ordained boundaries. We know this to be true because of the story of Job. Satan went and asked to have unrestricted access to Job. But God said what? No, you can only go this far. God set the boundaries. I believe in the New Testament we have a similar promise that you and I need to hold to. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful and just not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But in everything, he will provide a way out so that you may endure. God will never allow Satan to tempt you beyond what you are able. And even more, within every temptation, God divinely preserves a way of escape. A way out of sin that Satan cannot impede. God rescues the righteous by restraining evil and providing a way of escape. This is such an important truth because at least for me, I don't often see what, what God sees in me. There are plenty of situations where I'm pretty convinced I can't endure. But I need to be reminded that God rescues the righteous by giving us strength in our greatest moment of need. When we are weak, He is strong. Because all too often we can't hear God's yes you can because we're too busy saying no I can't. On more than one occasion, I know I've told myself, I don't think I can do this. And everything inside me wants to take the easy way out. And it's in these times that I have to believe what God sees about me more than sometimes what I see about me. I have to trust that his strength is perfected in my weakness. I have to believe that he who began a good work in me is faithful to perfect it. But this only happens when my eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. Because when that shift takes place and I begin to think about the things that surround me instead of him, I fall into the same trap that that Asaph fell into in Psalm 73. Listen to what he writes here. He says, Behold, these are the wicked and, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth, surely, and all day long. And Excuse me, they have increased in wealth. 
And surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. But then listen to what he says next. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I saw their end. God is able to rescue the righteous by giving us strength to endure the trials we face, by choosing to live a godly life in a sinful world. But it only happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus. Taking our eyes off of the world and finding refuge in the presence of Him who controls all that is in the world. And for this last one, I want you to to listen closely. God can rescue the righteous by restoring our brokenness. Maybe you've compromised what you know to be right. Perhaps you've let peer pressure influence your decisions. Maybe it's resulted in an unplanned pregnancy, a divorce, or a marriage that's on the rocks headed in that direction. Perhaps it's a a financial catastrophe. Listen to me closely. God is waiting to rescue you. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son, he is standing at the door calling you home. And as soon as he sees your repentant return, he runs, he runs to you with arms wide open and forgiveness. God is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The merciful gift of conviction is is his protection from letting you go your own way. Praise God for that. Listen to that voice and do not, do not turn away. God knows how to rescue the righteous by restoring your brokenness. By restraining evil, providing a way of escape, and by giving you strength to endure. I hope you see that as we read this letter, there's a lot going on around these early Christians. A lot that we can relate to. There's corruption and deceit, false teachers, immorality. But look at what Peter does. Peter turns their attention, and hopefully ours as well, off of what is happening around them to the one who is sovereignly in control. That's where we need to focus our attention. Upon God, who is is faithful and patient in His love, pure in His justice. He rescues the righteous and He rightly judges sin. The one who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's patient. He's merciful. His example in the past gives us fair warning about the certainty of what will happen yet future. A warning that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ have been called to proclaim to the world. Tell people that they can run to God in faith and trust in Jesus Christ and that He will rescue them. Stand firm in your faith. Hold fast to your conviction of what you know to be true because of what He says in His Word. Man, I can't help but say that. And not think about the Iranian pastor who's scheduled to be executed tomorrow for standing up for 
the conviction of salvation in Christ alone. He's surrounded by a world of sin, but he has refused to make his faith private. And he is declaring it openly. And it may cost his life. I thought about that and I thought, man, what if I was that guy? Would I be willing to do the same? I think what we're reading from Peter is the encouragement to do the same. In fact, why don't we just take the time as we close this morning to to pray for this man. If you would bow with me. Lord, we, we pray for the pastor in Iran. I can't remember his name, but you know his name. A name that you know because it's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We pray for his faith to be strengthened, his family to be protected. We pray for his life to be preserved, Father. And thank you for the testimony of this man, which is now internationally known. A man willing to sacrifice his life for his faith in Jesus Christ. Father, if in your plan you have chosen to rescue him from this world and to bring him home, we pray that there is another follower of Christ waiting in line, willing to do the same. I pray that those in the room today, myself included, that we will look at the example of this man, a man who lives in a society of sin, but a man who is unwilling to make his faith private. I pray that we would be one of those people waiting in line, ready to risk our life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Protect us, Father, from letting our abstinence excuse our apathy. Prevent our arrogance from fueling our anger. May we do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Knowing that no matter what happens in this world, in the end, it is you who rescues the righteous and punishes the unrepentant in a final day of judgment. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling, to make us stand in the presence of of your glory, blameless and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen.